I'm going to be reading the scripture for us this morning. It comes from 2 Samuel chapters 18 through 19. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up. If you have a phone, you're welcome to scroll through it. Um, we're going to look together and also be projected behind me. Let's read Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel, not Psalm, 2 Samuel 18 through 19 together. And I'm going to be skipping around a bit, but we'll get the full story. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over, set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Skipping down to verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Etai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And so the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, and Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went out under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between the heaven and the earth. While the mule that was under him went on, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Etai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. <laughs> and he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then the ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. Okay, we're going to skip down to the end of the chapter of 18. The king said to the Cushite messenger, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And it was told to Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the... Uh, in the house to the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth to this day. Then the king arose, took his seat in the gate, and the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. These are the words of the Lord. 
But before we step back into David's story and learn how God shines warm and brightly, even in this dark and cold place, would you pray for us and for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Father, um, we do thank you uh, for the opportunity to look at a story like this and to see you at work in it. Um, Lord, the imagery is striking. Um, even reading the story again, the, the emotions are so strong in the story. It's so very human, um, so very detailed. And I just pray that you um, would work in our human hearts would you help us to place ourselves in the story? But most of all, would you help us to place ourselves in your story, the story that you are at work in this world to do, the story of your son, Jesus? And would Jesus be high and lifted up? Would he be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. And we pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. So several years ago, my wife went out of town on a women's retreat and uh, I was in charge of my three children. Um, at the time, the twins were five years old and Millie was three. So it was a good bit of a while ago. And, uh, and you know, it started to rain on a Friday early evening and I did what every suburban dad with a, with a minivan does on those moments. I took them to Chick-fil-A, <laughs> right? That's what we all do. And so, and it was a mess. It was a mess to get there and it was a mess there. Um, at one point, a carton of large fries flew over a booth next to us from our booth to another booth. Um, you know, we, uh, ketchup packages were spraying everywhere, missing the, missing the trash can by a good several feet. Um, and, uh, we actually kind of blocked traffic as I ran into another suburban dad in the minivan, who's actually my boss at the time. And their inf incredibly efficient traffic flow was ruined for several minutes. Um, but finally, I kind of corralled my children into the play place. And after they took their shoes off, I kind of breathed this huge sigh of relief. Because I figured we were out of the way of trash cans and human beings over the age of 10. And um, there was ketchup nowhere in sight. And I thought, here we are, we're good. And so I kind of, you know, half watched, probably scrolled on my phone. <laughs> And as my older daughter, Carol, who was five at the time, coached my youngest daughter, Millie, who's three, further and further up the platforms into the kind of play place tower in Chick-fil-A. Eventually, Carol convinced Millie to get all the way to the very top platform. And when Carol turned back down to go down, disaster struck. And you can imagine what it was. Millie would not go back down. She was frozen at the top of a Chick-fil-A play place tower. And then of course she starts screaming and crying. And then of course, Carol starts screaming and crying out of guilt. And so both Carol and Millie were hysterical and no one could touch Millie. Not even the other kids, no other grown-ups around. And so in my kind of overwhelm and panic, um, I realized that the, the play pace was tiny, right? It was so small. It was so small. I was so tall, and I did the math. I did the physics. My dad bod, my very tall heights, trying to lever my way through those small platforms to the very top of the tower, it was not looking good. <laughs> and I thought I would get stuck for sure, and the fire department would have to come with their axes and hack the plastic of the, tra the tower apart. 
And so Millie and Carol are losing it, screaming and crying, and the perfectly put together suburban Christian mothers are looking at me with such judgment. And so I had to go into action mode. I squeezed my way, platform by platform, holding my breath, slithering, army crawling, barrel rolling when I had to, up and up, platform by platform, to the very top of the Chick-fil-A Play Place Tower. And then I grabbed hold of Millie and I brought my precious daughter level by level down, talking in soothing noises between sighs and held breaths and gymnastic grunts. Full disclosure, I thought many times that we'd have to call that fire department, even on the way down. Um, and also, um, it was a top five moment for me of being a dad, <laughs> top five. So, and there was much rejoicing to be had that day, especially by Carol. <laughs> so, in that moment, Millie was stuck and overwhelmed, and so was Carol, and no amount of coaching, education, pep talks, boosts could get Millie out. Uh, and no amount of my coaching and pep talks and boosts could get Carol to get Millie out. Millie and Carol, and even I at that moment, but especially Millie and Carol, needed an outside of them rescue. They needed their dad. And a biblical word, Millie, Carol, and all the rest of us need grace. We all need rescue, and this truth is at the very heart of our, all of our lives. Life can feel like we're trapped in by sin. Sins against us, sins by us, failures we've seen slip out of our mouths in a meltdown, other people's failures we've gotten caught up in, forced into with a sweaty, squirming effort to get through to them, platform level by level. And this stuck feeling, trapped and overwhelmed by our failures, is where we meet King David this morning. He's been chased out of town, out of Jerusalem, and into the wilderness yet again. But this time, his life and his kingdom are under the violent threat of his own son, Absalom. David feels the weight of Absalom, his sin and David's own sins, and the choice of how to even fight and engage in this battle. And into this scene that is well beyond a military strategy and counseling intervention, into this very space, God moves, and he comes in his grace. And David is not rescued by just anyone. It's no tall, dad-bodied, suburban father. But, dad has to, oh, sorry, but David has to be rescued by God, by the God in charge of everything. And if we have eyes to see it and believe it, we too know this rescue. God's grace happens in ways that are too large for us to have imagined. And God's grace happens in ways that are too deep for us to fully comprehend. God's grace is fully undeserved love and affection for us is even more overwhelming than our overwhelm. God does not give up on us in our parenting. 
He does not give up on us and our families of origin. He does not give up on us and our workplace failures and our workplace of burnout. He does not give up on us even in the midst of pandemic year two. How tiring is this? And the training we need to see God's grace at work in our lives, that training begins in this passage. In David's life, seeing God at work in his life. In 2 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, we see there are sermon's two main points. First, by God's grace, heaven and earth widely conspire for us. And this is going to be mostly from chapter 18. And then we're going to see second, by God's grace, people with mixed motives deeply conspire for us. And we're going to see that mostly in chapter 19. As usual, let's begin with the beginning and look at, from the very beginning at chapter 18, verse one and forward, at God's worldwide conspiracy for us. If we take a step back, verse one seen is actually truly overwhelming. In chapter 18, verse one, David is counting off individual members of God's people, ancient Israelites, to fight to the death against other individual members of God's people. A father is preparing an all-out self-defense but violent attack against his son with forces from his very own people. In many ways, King David is back in his element, mustering troops in the wilderness against a bigger army with a tactical and terrain advantage for him. And you see, God has continued to answer David's prayers to get him to even to this point the prayer that he uttered way back in chapter 15, which we looked at last week. You see, in chapter 17, between this week, last week and this week, Absalom foolishly sided with Hushai's advice. Remember, Hushai was David's plant to give false counsel to Absalom. And so Absalom goes against the better advice of Ahithophel, the wise counselor, that would have been just to quickly defeat and strike David when he was disorganized. But instead, Uh, Hushai convinces Absalom to let David and his troops go across the Jordan River and to regroup. And this this bought David the time to reorganize his troops into a three-part pincher formation and time to set up in a more densely wooded area that gave him a fighting chance. But we can see in verse 5 that the clear-cut military situation is extremely personally complicated, right? Look at verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Etai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David is extremely conflicted. He knows he has to fight his own son and most of Israel, but it's also his own son. David feels partly responsible even for the, fa- for the fact that his son is fighting him. After all, God spoke through the prophet Nathan in chapter 12, promising, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of the Uriah the Hittite, that is Bathsheba, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And that's certainly what's happening. The sword, the evil, that's what's going on in this passage. And at the same time, as we see later in that heated discussion between the soldier and Joab about what to do with Absalom dangling in the tree, 
David's very public instructions about being gentle on his son do so much damage to the morale and morals of his army. One commentator compares David's deal gently with my son to a patient telling a surgeon, deal gently with my cancer. Get most of it, but definitely just leave a tad since it's part of me and I would hate to lose all of it. This cancer comparison is really difficult. I get that, but it's really fitting because it gets at just how overwhelming and malignant and growing the sin of David's situation is. But right then and right there, for that very conflicted and very troubled person, David, God moves all of heaven and earth, all space and time to conspire for his good. (laughs) We read this wide scope in verses six through eight. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Did you hear that last phrase? And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Okay, yes, I get it. It likely refers to some sort of tactical advantage of David and his sort of guerrilla warfare being helped out by the trees that entangle a bigger, larger army. But I also don't want us to miss what the narrator of this chapter is doing. He wants us to understand that God is using even the trees to defeat Absalom and his attack on God's anointed king and kingdom. This couldn't be clearer in what God uses to capture Absalom, right? His head caught fast in an oak tree and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. What a turn of poetic justice, right? Look at what God is conspiring to do. The man with a narcissistic pride hangs himself up by his overswollen head and pounds of curly hair. It's wild. And Absalom's claims to the kingdom, represented by his royal mount, the mule, desert him. Do you realize that this is actually, that you and I are David in this passage? This is how God is working in our lives? Jesus came to earth from heaven to rescue us. And he did it by being suspended from a tree, hanging on a cross between heaven and earth for you and for me. Letter to the Galatians chapter three tells us that Jesus died like Absalom as a curse, hanged on a tree for our sins, the things that we publicly say and do and the things that we privately think and feel. Without Jesus, we are only Absalom in the story. We're only rebelling against the rightful king, assuming we know better how to rule our own lives and the world than God does. But hear me, with David, we are also, sorry, with Jesus, we are also David, riddled with doubts, speaking failures to the left and the right of us, not guarding our hearts, not guarding our eyes, passively paralyzed in our anxiety, but aggressive in our blame of others, aggressive in our blame of our own weaknesses. And yet, 
and a cosmically wide conspiracy. God moves heaven and earth for David. And he does the same. He cares to work for you and for me the same exact way. Because we too are his anointed in Jesus, his precious sons and daughters. But this is hard to take in. And so, like many pastors before me, I'm going to turn to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> in his poem, Love's As Warm As Tears, C.S. Lewis meditates on this cosmos rocking love of God. First, he compares God's love to warm, wet tears. And then he goes on to compare God's love to fiercely hot fire and then to a fresh spring season flowering into bloom in the air and in the trees. But finally, Lewis calls God's love as hard as nails. Love is nails, blunt, thick, hammered through the medial nerves of one who having made us new the thing he had done, seeing with all that is our cross and his. So once again, love is nails, blunt, thick, hammered through the medial nerves of the one who having made us knew the thing he had done, seeing all that is our cross and his. And I'm really indebted to a poet and theologian named Malcolm Gite, um, who comments on the purposefulness of God's love and crucifixion in this poem. And really, he's meditating on his own life and his own failures and sorry choices. And Malcolm Gita says this, it's in your bulletin's meditation quote too. From the beginning of creation, God had foreseen the sorrow of our misused freedom and what it might bring. And he chose from the beginning in that knowledge to share with us the consequences of our own mistakes, that he might redeem us from them. Let me make this really real. From the beginning, God saw my yesterday morning. The way I just lost it in the kitchen at my wife who was trying to help me in front of my wide-eyed children. <laughs> just hours before a funeral that I was doing, <laughs> about celebrating the life of a loving mother. God saw that and he chose from the very beginning and in that knowledge to share in the consequences of my pride and my anger, my desire to blame away my own shame. God saw all that and he chose to rescue me to nail that moment and all of the character defects behind that moment to a cross with nails thick and blunt hammered through the medial nerves, through the hands and feet of the one who is love. What's your latest sin that you just feel like God can't even touch with his forgiveness? The thing you're so ashamed of, you can't even say it out loud. Is that sin harder, thicker than the nails of Jesus' love for you? Heaven and earth, 2,000 years ago, shout, no way, not even close. 
But like Jesus's death, Absalom's death and its aftermath are overwhelmingly complicated by people's mixed motives. And yet chapter 19 shows us God's grace there too. And this is our second and final point. To see the grace of chapter 19 though, we gotta circle back to chapter 18 briefly. And we have to look at verses 10 through 15 and see how Joab handles the news of, of Absalom's helplessness. Not surprisingly, his reaction is full of mixed motives. Job's not afraid to go against the king's plea or command, I should say, of mercy. Despite one soldier's unwillingness to go against the king for a thousand pieces of silver, Job has no problem. Regardless, just don't miss this. Absalom hanging from a tree, being pierced by three sharp objects, once again points us to Jesus and the cross, but also don't mix the way that Joab does this with a mix of callous arrogance and with a nose for what's actually right. That's confusing. <laughs> and in chapter 19, God again uses this powerful mixture in Joab of just a sense for justice, but also an incredible self-focus to deeply conspire for David's good. And this is perhaps surprising, right? God began to work on David at a heart level immediately after he received the worst news a father can imagine. David asks the messenger, is it well with, my young, with the young man, Absalom? And the messenger answers, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man, aka not so well. And the next few verses show and tell David's reaction to the news. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. That is, David left that kingly seat in public. He went to a more private place, but he also left that seat of being a general and a king. And David's wailing is louder than any privacy can actually offer. The returning victorious soldiers hear David wailing, his weeping and his mourning for Absalom. They hear him crying, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And just notice the wordsmith, David the man who wrote most of the poetry of the Psalms, who eloquently eulogized the death of Saul and Abner, he stammers in his grief. These are the same two Hebrew words over and over and over again. My son, Absalom, my son, Absalom. And there's likely much guilt in this grief. As we said earlier, Absalom's death was the third that David had to pay as a penalty. God had promised a fourfold punishment for taking Uriah's life. But I really do appreciate the way that Rabbi David Wolpe and Pastor Dale Davis understand what's behind David's lament. It's a parent's recognition of the wrongness of things. That is, David wants something he can't have. He knows this world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. He wants peace in the kingdom and he wants God's deliverance, but he wants it without the death of his son. David wants to treat cancer with candy, not painful surgery. And Joab is the self-appointed man to tell David just exactly how it is and no uncertain terms, but also in how righteousness works. And we can summarize Joab's point in verses five through seven by saying, deliverance from da for David must involve disaster for Absalom. If the kingdom is to be saved, the enemy must be destroyed. 
That is, stop praying, David, for God to deliver us from evil unless you also yearn for evil's destruction. In this world as it is, we can feel the same way as David. We can feel that overwhelming frustration that David feels. We want intimacy without cost. We want intimacy without cost. We want to be truly known, truly seen, feel felt, get gotten, but we want all that without having to make ourselves vulnerable. And we see this in all of our lives. We try to get intimacy on the cheap, online, with social media posts or follows, the next Amazon purchase, the free-to-me nakedness of pornography, or we want our friends and family to always be doing things for us, reaching out. Why do I have to reach out to them again or invite them out? Why do I have to be the person that always asks the questions? And we want our churches and our other organizations to do everything for us. Why should I volunteer? Can't someone else do that? Why do I have to keep showing up to the gatherings when I don't really get very much out of them, at least at the time? Listen, this grace hurts. It hurts me, it hurts you. We want life to work differently than it does. But this is the truth from Joab. We want people to live and to love us and care for us and open up to us without having to do the very, very much at all. But that's not how relationships actually work. Relationships without cost are a Madison Avenue fantasy. It's just good marketing. So like David in verse eight, we sometimes have to get up and we have to show up where we're needed. David, God called David to be king. His troops needed him. And so even though he was bent over with grief for his son, David took his seat in the gate. And sure enough, hearts were cheered and the kingdom was saved. What kind of costly love is God and his grace calling you to this morning? perhaps especially when we feel overwhelmed by the wrongness of things. But to answer that call, we need to see how God is also like David in this story. God looked down at our languishing, the ways our human hearts demand to be served instead of to serve, to receive instead of to give, to fix our life so everything is easier, not better. God looked down at you and me, overwhelmed in our own sins and by the sins of others. And he sent his one and only son, his one and only begotten son to die in our place. And at that moment, God the Father loudly wailed from above to the cross, would I have died instead of you? Oh, my son, my son. God gets intimacy with cost. Jesus' God's son died as an enemy to save the kingdom. Jesus delivered us from evil by bringing destruction upon his head. Jesus died so that God could love us, could open up for us, see you, feel you, get you, know you, at no cost to you, but with every cost to him. And really the fame of King David throughout the Bible as the forerunner that is the foreigner for King Jesus, just underlines this point, right? The depths of his grace. Look at what a rack David is. Yet he's mentioned over and over and over again as a picture of Jesus. God can use 
not so great dads like David. God doesn't abandon us when we don't get it right with other people. And he also doesn't give up on us when other people get us overwhelmed, stuck in a place like grief. That's how a lot of us feel. Like Millie in the top of the Chick-fil-A play place. Stuck. And sin. But Jesus is coming. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to, to read your words and remember that you're at work. You're at work in our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to follow and to believe. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.